do you find it auspicious that uh, starlings are an invasive species of bird? <laughs> I did not know that, but uh, sure, yeah, that's auspicious. Welcome back to another episode of the Cardboard Herald, my chance to talk with creative gamers and game creators. And today I am joined by someone who has a huge amount of experience in the industry with all sorts of aspects of this industry. I have Dan Yarrington of Tabletop Tycoon, Starling Games, Victory Point Games, and about a billion other things with me. Welcome to the show, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, I have you here today to talk about really what you're working on nowadays. I mean, you have a lot of cool things coming as a publisher, but I have to dive into this history. So before we get to where you're at right now, let's get some context here. So when was it that you started in games as a business? Sure. So I started back in like 96 running events locally at local community colleges and doing a lot of, um, I've always played magic since like 1994. And so we ran a lot of tournaments for that. And then we started doing some online sales. We were in a very rural sort of uh, local area. So we sold online actually way back then in the dawn of time when you wrote your websites and uh, angel fire and that's <laughs> oh sort of yeah stuff. well you're you're saying rural i mean i started playing magic when i was a kid here in alaska so what's rural for you so like western new york is where i grew up so south of buffalo um so it's like amish country so oh, if you want to, cool so yeah but when i say i'm from new york people are like oh new york right and it was like that old <laughs> commercial it was like new york city right that's <laughs> Uh, like no, we were out. We're out. Um, we're the Buffalo Rome, so to speak. So, um, so very rural area. I mean, single digit thousands of people. So maybe not quite as rural as the Alaskan frontier, but uh, certainly not you know a big city that you would expect. So by that nature, we ran a lot of local events and stuff, and we did all that um, locally. And we actually had a little storefront locally too. Um, but we primarily sold online initially. And so it was an outgrowth of sort of events and stuff. And then I got into um, that over many years, over about a decade. I did a lot of magic tournaments and I was a judge for magic for many years and a delegate and all kinds of organized play stuff. And then, so retail was online primarily. And I did that all through college and then uh, eventually graduated. My wife and I got married. We moved to New Hampshire um, and, uh, and we've been up here since 2003. And so we expanded into lo our local retail operation. Then uh, we had a local retail operation previously, but we moved from a city of uh, city, I should say. Uh, we had a town of God, I'm, I want to say like year round residence is probably like 700 people where we were originally. Um, uh, and two that while well, I was there during college and maybe like single digit thousands, like 3000 people, you know, during college time. Uh, and then we moved to a metropolis of 30,000 people. So huge, you know, city. So, um, yeah, over, over the years we expanded, we ended up having many, many retail stores and we operated those for many years into the, uh, early 2010s. And as the, that started sort of winding down, uh, because as our leases came due, it sort of became evident that while local retail had done very well for us and that it continued to grow significantly, uh, we saw more and more sales going online. Uh, Amazon was picking up every year. You kind of have to flash back here, you know, 20 years to when um, most of our selling was on eBay. This is even before <laughs> Amazon was a big thing, right? Yeah. Uh, we sold all the like Lord of the Rings collectible miniatures games for people that remember that from Sabretooth. Totally, um, totally. Around like um, 
2004, 2005, 2006, I worked for a local retailer in Alaska, Bosco's Comics, and then eventually at the affiliated warehouse, Mad Al Distributors. And my job for about a year was being the guy who was like, well, we're not selling this locally here in Alaska. Let's throw this on eBay and see if we can get a seller. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So, yeah, we were a power seller on eBay for many years. And we did that um, before they had the term clicks and bricks. We did it. We had an integrated website where we sold all the stuff individually online and locally. And so we sold a ton of like hero clicks and Mage Knight and Mech Warrior and all that sort of stuff. Um, and trading cards, obviously single magic cards and still we're running lots of tournaments and, and at a local store and board games started picking up then as well. So if you remember back in like the 2000s, the early 2000s, that was sort of a, the Euro wave, if you think of it that way. And um, and so that continued to pick up. And then as around 20, you know, early 2010s, like 2011, 2012, is sort of when Kickstarter started becoming a thing. And we were involved in that very early on, uh, both as a store who was reselling games like alien frontiers that were some of the first games that were done through kickstarter and uh just selling those in our stores we had multiple stores at that point um and so we ended up getting into we had a warehouse so we ended up getting to shipping and distribution and that sort of just developed like one thing to another into this sort of nice um progression through all the stages as i think of it or all the different elements of the industry so we've done at this point i've done retail i've done events i've done logistics i've done wholesale distribution uh and then eventually we got into uh publishing so we kind of that was like the last thing we did so a lot of people get into it and they do like i've got this game i want to make and they're a publisher and that's it right they just jump in and we came to it the other way right we were selling other people's games we actually did a lot of um uh, news and media support in like 28, 2008, um, 2009, 2010. We sort of started expanding beyond the store and doing a lot of media support and podcasts. So we did many years of audio podcasts. We did Mirror Games presentations, Game Gab interviews, and all that sort of stuff. And this is back in the nascent days. You know, there weren't really video shows. It was mostly audio. Right, uh, right. And even that, there were a handful, right? There was, uh, this was the era of Pulp Gamer Network and, um, Dice Tower was around, obviously, and a few other folks. So so we got into that and then eventually sort of developed into publishing and that we started doing more sort of more significantly around when like Black Orchestra came out. That was one of the first ones we did sort of from scratch, uh, where previously we had done a lot of, hey, we're helping you do your uh, sales and we're helping you do your logistics. We're shipping your stuff for you. And oh, yeah, I guess we do know some people that could do the art for your game. Oh, and oh, and we know a factory that you know, could do that. I know a guy who knows a guy because yeah, back, exactly. back in the day, I mean, even still today to a degree, but I feel like the, the world of tabletop gaming maybe 10 years ago was a much tighter world than it is right now where uh, people were doing a little bit of everything and you kind of knew a, a lot of the players. So I imagine networking in that way of being like, well, I, I, I've been in the retail space and the distribution space and as an eBay seller, you know, going to conventions, I can connect you to all these different resources. If you're the person who wants to make the game, I can make that happen. I facilitate the game making for you. Yep. So yeah, we gained a lot of experience. Uh, it took a lot of bumps and bruises along the way. So we learned a lot of things, both from mistakes that we made, which is sort of a constant learning process for everybody, right? Hopefully, you hopefully people make mistakes and learn from them. Don't just be like, well, that wasn't my fault and you know, move on <laughs> to the next thing. So uh, we learned both from ourselves and then we had a lot of clients. We had hundreds of clients over the years that we did, you know, shipping and logistics and sales for. So we got to observe their businesses 
uh, up front and personal and sort of behind the scenes and see a lot of stuff where like, oh, we definitely don't want to do that. Or like, oh, that was a really good idea. We should do that. So um, we were involved very early on with uh, like Clever Mojo and Alien Frontiers with Gamelin Games. We were uh, working with them for a long time for doing uh, from back in the days when um, before they had Tiny Epic, right? Which right, of course right, is their, right. their big mainstay now. Um, so, but yeah, there's there's a lot of good experience there, and so that continued to develop. And we we had our operations actually, and that's where sort of Tabletop Tycoon came from. Is as the company had grown, and uh, around 2015, we actually had expanded so much, we kind of had to restructure corporately, and so we needed to come up with a name for that. And so I said, well, of course. I mean, we have retail, we have logistics, we have wholesale, we have kind of this publishing thing we're doing nascently at that point. So I'm clearly a tabletop tycoon, right? So then <laughs> that was our, that was like the holding company name. And so now, of course, that's developed that um, the retail is sort of wound down. We don't really do that anymore. Um, we still sell our own stuff through Amazon and lo- uh, local. Normally, I like to say I run, you know, six to eight pop-up conventions a year, which is sort of our pop-up retail, right? So we have, we go for a few days and we do that. Obviously not in 2020. So right, hopefully right. in 2021, because that's really where I'm most comfortable is selling things. That's what I like to be doing and talking to people. So um, as we prepare for next year, sort of a weird year this year, but um, for everybody, but uh, as we prepare for next year, that's going to be an interesting thing. And then, uh, of course, last year, we actually sold off our logistics and wholesale division to Fun Again. And so now we're just sort of focused on publishing, which we'd been doing, like I said, since about 2015, I think is when we sort of got seriously into doing that in the in the way that most people would think of publishing. And so now we actually have quite a catalog of, uh, we think of those imprints. We kind of used to do everything under one brand, which many people do. Um, you know, they'll do their one game. It's the, whatever the name of their company is, it was usually the name of their first game. Yeah, 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 uh, totally. <laughs> and then they're like, and now I make blah. And so we had a catalog that was like, we had like Ella Minis, which is a great little kids game right next to Black Orchestra, a, game, a cooperative game about killing Hitler next to Alien <laughs> Frontiers next to you know a game about puppies or something you know and so it was a very sort of like weird uh for me at least as sort of a branding person is like that's a that's a weird disconnect and you'll see that in lots of people's catalogs right you've got a game for four-year-olds next to a game that's clearly for sort of adults um and so in 20 i believe it was the beginning of 2018 is when we sort of had different imprints that we launched so we had been doing polyhero dice which are cool shaped dice for like dnd type games um we have uh, Starling Games that makes Everdell and, and that had made new editions of things like Alien Frontiers and Black Orchestra. Um, and then we had Victory Point Games that we acquired in 2018. And so they make a lot of historical games and games like Nemo's War and Dawn of the Zeds. Uh, and then we have Flying Meeple, which is our kids and family games. So that's more like, you know, for my three boys, they're uh, 10, 6, and 4. Uh, hopefully they're asleep now. Uh, and they are, it's uh, it's 11.20 local time, by the way, for people listening at home. So I hope they're asleep. Um, and then we have Sparkworks, which is more, excuse me, which is more like um, bookstore games. So we do the Princess Bride series of games. We do Blindspot, which is a great board game, and a bunch of other titles. So one thing that I want to make sure, you know, somewhere in all of this, like you were involved or actually were Game Salute, right? Yes. Excuse me. I'm just coughing there. Okay. Um, yes. So Game Salute was, interestingly, Game Salute was our imprint or uh, concept for a everything that was not retail. So Mirror right, Games right, was a retail right. operation. Yeah. Excuse me. I'm going to have to get another drink of water. <clears throat> something stuck in my throat there so games started out as like media news support and we did podcasts and all that stuff but literally it was just 
anything that was not the, the, the retail store. And then that sort of developed eventually into this sort of weird um, amalgamation of things. Right, right, right. As we right. did like, oh, yeah, I guess we could do your shipping for you. And they're like, oh, yeah, we could sell your product for you to stores. And, yeah, we could help you out with conventions. And, yeah, we could do production for you. And so we had, excuse me, <clears throat> swallowed a frog there or something. And then we had a, um, uh, we did convention support. We did a powered by Game Salute imprint that was mm-hmm. like literally you'd make your own game, and then we would help you with the production and the sales and logistics. So it's sort of a uh, Intel inside sort of thing, right? So it was a little different than a traditional publisher. And then the last thing that we did is we started publishing, and of course we still had that under Game Salute because we didn't have any other brands. We just had Mirror Games and Game Salute. So as that all developed. Eventually, GameSlit was just one part of Tabletop Tycoon as a whole. And now, as we got into you know 2018, we had a bunch of different brands all under GameSlit. And so if you imagine sort of a nested setup where Tabletop Tycoon was the whole company, you had all the different divisions of you had Myriad, which was retail. You had GameSlit, which was kind of publishing at that point. You had Ship Naked, which was the logistics side of things, and Hitpoint Sales, which was wholesale. And once we'd sold off Ship Naked and Hitpoint Sales to fun again, Myriad Games sort of wound down because the retail operation had wound down. All we had left was Game Salute, so it seemed silly to have Tabletop Tycoon in the parent company, then Game Salute, and then you know your imprint, Starling, etc. Right, so. right. So you've seen a, a lot of waxing and waning in the whole industry. I mean, you've been involved in like local retail stores when they were at their biggest, and then you've kind of seen the brick and mortar store kind of wane, and then. There's also the the rise and fall of eBay as like a major way of distributing retail products. I mean, eBay is, of course, still there and they're, of course, thriving, friendly local game stores. And then you witness this explosion of Kickstarter. Like the first time that Game Salute kind of came onto my radar is I remember that there was this cool hot game alien frontiers which we talked about and you know clever mojo was uh doing that and it was the first game that funded like i don't know what was the original funding like thirty thousand dollars or you know fifty thousand it was less than that it was like fourteen thousand dollars and at that time it was amazing right it was like oh my god you can make money on kickstarter what is this thing right right and then i want to say it was fourth edition it was like a major renovation of the game in which there were going to be the little plastic baubles and you know you had the rocket ship dice and everything and that's where i started seeing game salute come up on kickstarters and i was like what are these guys who are like facilitating all the shipping and everything like i'm buying from clever mojo but also there's this other production company it kind of reminded me in some ways of like when you watch an indie film and you see like six different production imprints at the beginning of the movie it's like okay so these guys are kind of involved in a little bit of everything and somehow have their fingers in all these different pies but they're not actually the guys who are in control of everything and then of course you kind of evolve to where you are today and you as Starling Games are still utilizing Kickstarter and it has changed dramatically since you must have first dipped your toes into this. And as this experienced veteran in this hobby, do you anticipate some of this waning? Yeah, so it's interesting as we've just, you know, just in the last year, really, I've sort of turned my focus entirely to publishing, right? And so we had a whole team working on different aspects of that. And so just for perspective, because you're always working, 
whether you're a one-person publishing company, you're never, no one person just makes a game by themselves. There's maybe like Ryan Lockett, right? Could yeah, make a game. Yeah. You know, he does <laughs> yeah. illustration, he do, does all that stuff, but even he has a bigger team now. And so it's always important to know that there's so many people that go into crafting and making a game come to life, whether it's, um, you know, people just think of, oh, it's the designer, it's the illustrator maybe, and it's the publisher, which is sort of this weird amalgamation. You can understand what a designer does. They do the rules, they do the playtesting, et cetera. You can understand what an illustrator does. They paint the things, right? Uh, understanding like all the production stuff that goes into mm -hmm. it, like literally what we would call a producer. Uh, if you look at like Fantasy Flight Games credits, they say like, here's the producer and they'll have all these different, you know, credits. So whether you're working with people as an independent contractor or as staff, um, like Leader Games has a lot of focus on staff, you're always working with dozens and dozens of different people to make a game come to life, whether it's a factory or you know uh, an accountant or all sorts of people. So we were sort of that facilitator or provider of services for creative individuals for a long time. And then of course we've made games as well. So I've done some light design, I've done a lot of development, I've run more Kickstarter campaigns according to Kickstarter than anyone else on the planet in any category. <laughs> And so hundreds and hundreds of campaigns, right? And so seeing all that experience, we've always been experimenting with, we did direct order pre-orders like Black Orchestra, the first mm -hmm. version of that was just pre-ordered through blackorchestra.com. And this was during a time when Kickstarter was a big thing, right? 2014, 2015. Right. So we've always sort of been experimenting with what's the best way to connect with fans and to make games a reality. I think the evolution that you've seen in Kickstarter, obviously if you saw the latest quarter report, um, which Ico Partners does good uh, overviews of that stuff, or you can look through Medium, I think had a decent article on this. And then ICB2.com is a great place to sort of see that industry overview as well. So Kickstarter was up, you know, this last quarter. And it's not just attributable. I think it was up like 48%. And that's during a pandemic. And so like, oh, well, you know, but Gloomhaven happened. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, yes, Frosthaven was, was $13 million. But that doesn't account for all the growth. And so really any way that you're making games, like back 20 years ago when we first got into this, it was, it was pretty much the same process. It was make a thing find people who want to buy the thing, figure out how to get the money for the thing. So it's all just different methodologies for it. So Kickstarter has obviously accelerated a lot of that growth and enable people as a platform to connect. And it is one of the best community engagement platforms. Leave aside any of the challenges of the platform itself in that it doesn't, it's not a fully integrated web store. It doesn't really handle, you know, people don't, consumers don't really seem to understand the concept in all the different ways, since there are many, many ways people use Kickstarter, uh, and the, especially in tabletop, the user, so to speak, has gotten the quality of games has gone up and up and up. And this is just across the industry, whether they're done on Kickstarter or not. And so the expectation of this could be a really polished game right out the gate is very different than uh, I review every Kickstarter every day. I monitor that as a normal part of our business. And you'll see stuff on there that's obviously just a very nascent thing. It raised, raises $3,000. Yeah, it's a yeah. card game. You know, all the way up to come on doing, you know, multi-million dollar campaigns, almost like clockwork. Like just, oh, yep, there's another come on campaign. Oh, yeah, how many millions of dollars is this going to raise? So obviously, you know, they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to prepare for that, where somebody else might be spending single-digit thousands of dollars to, like, get some concept cover art and, like, <laughs> yep. do some playtesting, and that's it. 
And so for a consumer, you can see where that's kind of confusing that like, am I investing in these games? Am I, you know, buying the games? Is this a pre-order store? I see it says estimated delivery, but yeah, what does estimated really mean? And so you might have an estimated delivery of July. And like as soon as June 30th rolls around, like, why is this campaign late? You know, <laughs> yeah. Well, have you been reading the updates for the last like six months that we've been telling you like, oh, we had some production issues or whatever. Um, so it's a very interesting evolution, but whether it's, you know, one person, I made a game, it's, you know, sitting at my convention booth and you're buying it from me, or I've sold it through Kickstarter in sort of a pre-order fashion, it's the same process, right? And we're always going to be looking at methods to do those different things. So we've done games where we just make them entirely. Typically, lower price point games are a lower risk in that way. So you're making a kid's game. It might cost you more in staff time to run a Kickstarter campaign than it does to actually just produce the game and right, sell right. it. So yeah. that's that's sort of the evolution. So I don't think the the bubble, so to speak, is going to go away. We've sort of uh, we've seen that. Um, I actually did a, a progression analysis using BoardGameGeek data. This was maybe three to six months ago, uh, mapping out because everybody would always say like, "Oh, well, uh, there's somewhere between I don't know, like a thousand and ten thousand games that came out last year." And I'm like, well, well, "We have to be able to get closer than that, right?" Right, right, right. And so you saw the progression. If you map it, actually, the explosion in board games really started. If you look at the curve in like 2005, mm -hmm. that's when it really started. And of course, that's. 10 years prior to Kickstarter really being a big thing. Right. So it's it's brought a lot of new people onto the horizon in addition to, you know, established companies like Steve Jackson Games that are using it. Um, but I don't think it's, it's single-handedly caused that. It's just enabled a lot of people to make games. And that means you're going to have a lot more games. And just like when you have a lot more of anything, not everything's great quality, but right, it is right. a lot more variety for people. So that's going to decrease, right? We've already seen that in this 2020 and a result, as a result of the pandemic, companies saying, hey, we're going to cut down the number of releases we're doing. We just can't, you know, uh, sustainably push all this stuff through the channel because we're previously, if you talk to some of these established companies where, hey, we're going to make and we can sell 10,000 of anything that we make. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. I'm Rio Grande. I'm going to make it. It's 10,000 units, right? Right. And totally. now it might be a thousand units, 2000 units, that sort of thing. And of course, if you go back far enough in each of those companies' histories, that's what they did, right? They're like, well, I guess we could sell a thousand. I guess we could sell 3000, right? And eventually they grew to a point where that was bigger. So that diffusion, if you think of it that way, of titles, people are still buying and playing lots and lots of games and more and more people are doing it every year. Hence the growth in board game geek, you know, users and all that sort of data. Um, but a lot of those users, as we think of them, right, the consumers are buying Pandemic or they're buying, you know, Exploding Kittens. They're buying like noob games, as we would think of them. They're not like serious gamer games, which I always think is a hilarious concept. Yeah. Because like, what do you like? Well, that's not a good game. How, what do you mean? How are you defining a good game? A good game is anything people are having fun with. Well, I exactly. don't know the mechanics of that game. Okay, well, then that game is not for you. But, like, there's thousands of other games that you can enjoy. So the whole, like, poo-pooing other people's fun is is very funny to me in, in an ironic sort of way because I'm just like, but it doesn't. It really doesn't matter what you think as, like, a critic or whatever it is. I always look at it from the perspective people ask me, well, what's your favorite game? And so in, in retail, right, you, get, you learn very quickly. Uh, that is not your job. Yep, your job yep, is yep. to find... What is your favorite game? You totally, right? totally that depends on the person. So um, that's what we're looking for is great experiences. And I think you're going to see a winnowing of number of titles. You're going to see a winnowing, unfortunately, of, of different companies because the financial wherewithal of companies is 
is not great, especially during this time. Um, but then at the end of the game, the bright side of that is, and this has always been the case, what we do, our business, our industry is very good value, right? We People complain, oh, I paid $75 or $100 for this game, whatever it is. I played for Tapestry. I can't believe this is $99, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and you're like, yeah, but okay, so I go to the movies. It, right. That's a hundred yeah. bucks right there, right? So and I so if you literally like bought Tapestry, played it once, had fun or not, because like you don't always go to the movies and like have a great time, right? But you're like, oh, I went, I experienced that thing. And if you literally set it on fire, you would still have the same value as going to a movie. And of course, you're not doing that; you're playing it over again, right? So the value of what we do is sort of um, uh, recession resistant, is what they call it, because it's just there's a flight to quality. Uh, and there's a flight to obviously things that people can do at home and not go out. And just that's always been the case, right? That's not new. Like we've played uh, games, you know, for thousands and thousands of years. So the, the all throughout the history of humanity, we have played games. Um, and so I think that you'll see a winnowing, but mostly of titles and some companies. You'll see consolidation. You're already starting to see that um, in the industry. And that's been going on for decades. So, yeah, it's an interesting time, but um, I think we, we as an industry are well-suited to that time. Yeah, well, I, I think part of it is that uh, the more that someone's in the industry as either someone who's making podcasts or videos or they're making games or they are just a consumer, I think there's a certain stage in which they look at their shelves, like the shelves behind me right now, and they're like, God, I have a hundred games and I only play games two nights a week. And if I only play games two nights a week, that means 104 plays. But I want to play my favorite games instead of the games that I play out of obligation. But these have sentimental value. I don't want to get rid of them. But I can't get any more games to put back onto my shelf. And now I'm having to get rid of games. And there's so many games that I don't know how to get rid of them because they, they don't do well on math trades or on our board game exchange or wherever. And there becomes this like crisis that someone has within their own consumption of board games and they kind of extrapolate that they they project that onto the industry as a whole that how could anyone want more games if i'm in a position where i'm struggling with my own relationship to games right now i want to play more games i want to own more games but i have too many games so how could anyone else want games and i think that that may be some of where like the this like persistent fear has been that people have been talking about for so long. And I, I think it's a natural course of the gamer to end up developing that relationship until you get to the point where you're like, okay, I know how to get rid of games. And I also know how to be more selective about the ones that I get, you know, I can play a game and enjoy a game without saying I have to buy a game. Uh, and <laughs> that's a good place to be as a gamer. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think that, that relationship to the things that we collect and own and consume and want to play and want to share with friends is going to kind of keep that narrative alive for as long as this industry exists. But I do want to pivot and I want to talk about the games that you're actually making because we, we went through this whole history here, your distribution models and how you're releasing games. And now you have, these imprints and the imprint that actually I got talking to you uh, with was through Starling Games. First off, do you find it auspicious that uh, starlings are an invasive species of bird? <laughs> I did not know that, but uh, sure, yeah, that's auspicious. 
Yeah. Eight more game tables, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, uh, well, there's a whole lot of literature that you can look up online of whether or not starlings should be considered pests. But you know, they're beautiful birds, and so people are like, "Oh, great! I love starlings." And then people are like, "Oh my god, the starlings are literally taking over." Yeah. Um, but. Uh, you kind of are because you have these incredibly beautiful games and they are becoming these critical darlings. So the the two major ones that come to mind for me are, of course, War of Whispers and Everdell. And then you're just about to release a new game, Flourish. Is that right? Is that under Starling? Yep. Yeah. So those are all under Starling. Um, and we have, you know, five different imprints, as we mentioned earlier. But Starling is probably the most well-known just just by dint of Everdell, which is our most successful game so far. And uh, that was, of course, by James Wilson. His wife, Clarissa Wilson, also helped work on that a ton. Uh, they, they sort of playtested that a million times over like five years as they were developing it. Uh, and then, of course, A War of Whispers by Jeremy Stoltzfus and, and great art by... Um, I'm going to butcher his name. I think it's Tomasz Jedruzuk. Uh, I believe he's Polish. Um, but uh, And then Flourish, we have uh, a ton of, uh, I think we have four four major artists on that one. And that's a, uh, a gardening game. It's a game about building a delightful little garden. And that's also by James and Clar- Clarissa Wilson. So uh, same team that brought you Everdell. Um, and so that one is a one to seven player uh, game that you can play cooperatively or competitively. And we're just starting to sort of tease that out now. So you'll see more videos and coverage of that coming up. Um, we're doing a lot more um, refinement of games, I would say, before we sort of get them out to the market uh, these days. So we're doing a lot more things are coming, becoming a lot more finished before we sort of reveal them. So hopefully that'll result in shorter windows between when you hear about something like Flourish and when you can actually play it versus like, hey, here's this idea and maybe a year and a half from now you'll be able to play it. Um, and War of Whispers is actually a good example in uh, of from that title of, of one that, you know, you never know where a success is going to come from because for any industry uh you're going to have especially a product driven industry you're going to have a lot of titles that come out and you'll see successes and you'll see ones that don't really resonate with the market and war of whispers first time we did it uh kickstarter campaign raised like 40 mid 40s i think like 45 47,000. um came out had good response right but we we couldn't quite get all the stretch goals we wanted etc and then came out had some really good reviews uh and people just loved it and so then we, we were able to do a second edition and that next campaign did very well and actually, we saw a similar element to that with Black Orchestra, which I mentioned earlier, where that was like the first printing came out. And of course, people that are just discovering it go, oh, why didn't I know about this game? Why didn't I know about War of Whispers? Or why didn't you make more? I always love that. I'm like, do you really think that we didn't want to sell more copies? Right? Like, well, of course we want to do that. So the reality is you're always trying to balance, you know, the... Uh, the speculative nature of new games, you're investing all this money, tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars into getting a game done, right? Between development and playtesting and art and marketing and conventions and all that stuff. Um, and so it's very exciting to see. Obviously, Everdell is kind of a line now. we got a bunch of expansions. So Spirecrest and Belfair just came out. Uh, we've got another expansion in the works for that that we've already been teasing. So that'll be coming up. Uh, and then, of course, War of Whispers. We just did a little a mini expansion, as we call it. And we did, we're did. we doing a reprint of that. And then Flourish is going to be one of our major new releases. So we've done hundreds of products over the years uh, since we've been doing publishing, uh, publishing proper. And I'd say probably dozens of games, like unique games. So out of those, you know, you just have a handful of them that people would actually know and care about. Um, Certainly we still get, this always cracks me up. 
we make games like Pixel Lincoln and all these other, you know, sort of weird games people would think of as weird. And at the time, they might have been huge, right? But what you really think about it from the perspective of is like that person or the group of people that enjoy that game, whatever it is, that's the what you're trying to resonate with. And so the most successful games from an outside perspective are those that resonate with the most people. So obviously Everdell, you know, great uh, artwork by Andrew Bosley and uh, great development and, and playtesting. We had a whole great team there. And if you just look in the credits, you can see the dozens and dozens of people that are involved with that. Yeah, that's one of the things that I first noticed about the game is that it just had so many people listed as being involved in the project, like uh, much more than you would typically see on a box or in the back of a game book or something, uh, giving the, the, the credits there. And with Everdell, you know, like, I, I don't know beforehand how well known Starling Games was. I, I certainly hadn't heard of the the company until Everdale hit the table. And it was like this buck wild production. Like, was that the plan from the get-go? Like you you had this game design and then maybe you commissioned the artwork. It's Andrew Bosley who does incredible work and all the creatures are are beautiful and the world is vibrant and it's such lovely artwork. And then you're like yo, let's have a giant three-dimensional tree, let's have squishy resources and, you know, all these cool, big, chunky things and everything's going to be lavish to the nines. Like, was that kind of the design going in for it or, or did that evolve as you were prepping the project? Yeah, so certainly the projects evolve and, and that was done, you know, through Kickstarter. So you allowed all that stuff as stretch goals. So it might be ideas of you start thinking when you're running a campaign, like, okay, what could we do for stretch goals? And you sort of build a what we now have is the collector's edition of the game. Um, that's sort of a fancier, you know, version of it. Um, and you'll see deluxe editions, that sort of thing. But that one was, we ended up calling the collector's edition. So some of that evolves from comments from the audience, basically. So, you know, customers will say, what if you had metal tokens? And we're like, well, that's totally unnecessary, but sounds cool. So <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Um, and obviously you end up with different price points, right? So we kind of have a hundred dollar version of the game and you have like a $60 version of the game. Um, and then those, that, that is a different experience, but we wanted to make sure I, I actually managed a lot of the production on that thing. So my title is more like producer, executive producer. So I was literally like, you know, my biggest contribution is probably the squishy berries, right? Yeah. And just yeah, yeah. Like testing and stuff. Um, and so you're looking at it. Yeah. And going, everybody's working on that. So let's say, you know, Dan May was working on development with, with James. They were talking, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we could do this or that? Or what if we had the board and it was shaped? So it was sort of like cut out as opposed to like a square board. Um, none of those individual things are really super innovative. Like you, there's lots of games that have done those sorts of things before. Um, but what you hope to do is to get a game experience that is – I think of it as a hardware or cardware, if you think of it there, because it's made out of cardboard. But there's the there's the interface that you're dealing with, which would be like the UI in you know video game design. And then there's the mechanics and the rules, and that's sort of a more abstract piece of it. And then there's the flavorware, if you think of it that way, which is the you know you got the software, you've got the hardware, which is the cardware, and then you've got the flavorware, which is all the theming and stuff. Delicious. And, that's the yeah. That's the beauty of squishy berries and you know little twigs and um, the round smooth pebbles and then pearls and pearl brook and all that stuff. It's just it's cool. Like at the end of the day, you know, we as an industry are sort of a subcategory of toys. That's how they think of us. Like if you look in like literally, I think our NAICS code, which is like North American Industrial Classification System, is 
dolls, toy, and game manufacturing. That's the category. And so we are just a subset of toys, but that toy factor, that hardware is really important to people. Like it's, it's even if it's just, oh, I'm playing a card game, oh, what's the finish of the cards? And like, how does it feel to hold them? That tactile experience, because it is a physical product really matters. You know, th this is something that you would know about. Maybe you can clarify or confirm something for me. I, I heard one time that, uh, the reason a lot of board games are rated for ages 13 and up, even if there's not really any objectionable content, is because of the classification of games as toys, and that there may be certain certifications that cost money in order to be able to market games at lower age ranges. So, like, if I want my game to be marketed towards 10 and up, I might have to pay for getting some sort of inspection or certification done, and that may be more rigorous or more costly if I want to do a game at, say, 8 and up. And if you are, you know, truly wanting to market specifically to those age ranges, you might invest in that. But then if you have a game where you're like, yeah, this is totally playable for an eight-year-old, but, you know, it's going to be their parents who are going to be the ones buying it, so we don't need to bother with it. They just have 13 and up. Is, is there any truth to that? Yeah, so I actually just sat through at, at Gamma Expo, one of the last conventions before the sort of lockdown for pandemic. We I just sat through another seminar on this. And so product safety testing, whether it's under CPSIA standards, which is in the U.S., or uh, CE standards, if you see that CE symbol from the European Commission, um, those are real and those costs are real. So you, it's basically you're testing every different component in the game. So in the case of Everdell, right, the testing for that's very expensive because you're testing the berries and mm -hmm. the the cards and the punch board and the uh, you're testing everything for like phthalates, which is a chemical, and you know lead if it's metal, and you're testing for all these dangerous substances because at the end of the day. What happens when my four-year-old picks it up and starts chewing on it, right? right That's right, what they right, want right. to know. So the, typically the, it gets pretty wonky and complicated here, but whether it's 13 plus or 14 plus, 14 plus is sort of the, the safer version of that. The question is really, is it for teenagers functionally or is it for kids younger than that? And there's a lot of games where you could make both arguments, right? So you could say, well... Yeah, can, can I give this to some eight-year-olds and they can play it by themselves? Like, can they mm -hmm. read the rules and do all that stuff? Or if they're playing with adults, can they play? And obviously, you can subtract a couple of years, you know, depending on the kid. And everybody loves to think their kids are more precocious than everyone else's kids, of course. Right, right, right. So right. that's largely a sort of um, – there is a reasonableness standard there. And actually, just in June, the local enforcement of that in the U.S. adjusted that because you can imagine, like – some toy manufacturer saying, because these are toy standards, saying, well, I have this cute little plush toy, and I totally know that like five and six-year-olds are going to be playing with this thing, but I don't want to pay for the safety testing, so yeah, yeah. it's 14 plus, <laughs> yeah. right? And so they actually just implemented uh, more stronger standards to say you can't do that. So even in like Europe, for instance, Everdell, because it has sort of kiddie art, because the illustration is more fanciful versus something like War of Whispers, which are both illustrated, right? right They're like, right. oh, but these are cute animals. So we don't believe that this is for 14 plus. We think it's for 8 plus or whatever. So they would require you to do that testing anyway. 
Um, and so we have done all that safety testing, even though Everdell was originally launched as, I think it was 13 plus, and then the next printings were 14 plus. Um, probably the next printing in future will be like 10 plus, because once you've done the testing, the difference there sort of goes away. But you are talking thousands of dollars of testing, right? I think the it's probably four to $5,000 worth of safety testing, and that's for each product. So you do a new expansion, you got to do the safety testing for that as well. I gotcha. Yeah. You know, the first time that I ever heard about anything like this, it, it was a Quarriers, if you remember Quarriers as yep. a title. Uh, there was what? some controversy over like a, a kid won a tournament, but he was 11 and Quarriers was like 13 up. And I, I guess someone involved in the, the tournament was challenging whether or not an 11 year old should be allowed to win the game because the game is a 13 and up game or something like yeah. that. You know, it, it's so long ago that I've virtually forgotten the entire controversy surrounding it, just knowing that it was Quarriers in a tournament and there was someone under the, the age limit. But uh, it, it's it's fascinating the the implications of like retail classification in the United States for something like board games. I mean, like, as you said, you were at Gamma and you sat through a panel on this whole thing that is completely innocuous to the general consumer, but must have dramatic ramifications for you as a, a publisher and manufacturer. Yeah. And obviously we want, you know, bottom line is you want these, your products to be safe. So yeah, like, yeah, totally. don't, don't eat courier dice. And, you know, <laughs> but they look so good. And, and hey, like, let me tell you this. I mean, my wife is a grown-ass adult, so she should be responsible for herself. But those squishy berries, she looks at those and she's like, something about the texture makes me want to chew on these things. I just want to get in there. She hasn't. I, I haven't are, counted them. I haven't counted them, to be fair. You know, I, <laughs> they are safe, but uh, we do not recommend chewing those berries. They are. If you did that, you would not die. But uh, just don't do that. That's probably not not a good idea. We did joke about making uh, for um, for like uh, conventions or something. We make little fruit snack packs that were like gummy <laughs> berries, and then be that style. And you could you know eat your berries as you're playing. So there are a bunch of edible games. Have you seen like the chocolate uh, monopolies and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I went to uh, Germany and I went to the Ritter Sport factory. The, they're like the fancy square chocolate. Um, I have family in Germany and I've visited several times. I have a super affinity for that chocolate. I could eat dozens of bars. I, I should not eat dozens of bars of that chocolate. <laughs> but I went to their factory and did like a, a tour and just kind of walked around and everything. And they had like a chocolate Catan there. And, you know, not only did they have one that was like an edible Catan aspect, but they also had like a Catan expansion that was chocolate bean focused. It was mm -hmm. crazy or cocoa bean. Um, yep. Yeah. So what I'm saying is I need my edible Everdell to be available. Yeah, we're, we'll we'll get right on that. That's for right <laughs> the next expansion. So. Totally viable for a Kickstarter. I, I'm yes. expecting it soon. So Flourish, um, one of the things that occurred to me when I heard about this game being announced and getting ready for this interview, actually uh, talking with the Tabletop Tycoon team, was that I had recently played a game uh, by Bruno Catala. He co-designed this game.
game with someone I'm forgetting the name right now, but it's called Bees. Uh, or no, Queens, Queens, to be or not to be, um, B-E-E. That's all about flowers and gardening. Uh, And then I know that uh, recently there was the monumental success of Wingspan, and Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Hargrave has been working on some non-traditional approachable board game themes, including a a game about flowers, and then there's a game that AEG is publishing about uh, butterflies. Like, how much of Flourish on your part is an attempt to round out the the catalog of Starling Games to have like these non-traditional themes that may be kind of in vogue right now. Yeah, so like, you know, Mariposa is another, you know, there's not, that's not new. Like the, you know, I would say there's probably more in Euro games, very dry, like, you know, the whole joke of traders in the Mediterranean. Yeah. But that's traders uh, in the Mediterranean. That's right. not, you know, growing your beautiful garden. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's lots of great, um, you know, abstract, I guess you would call them that games, totally. but there's, there's something that you're looking for when you're theming a game is what's appropriate for the theme weight is what I think of it as. And so, you know, war of whispers, it's, chunky games lots of detail there it's not overly complex but thematically the the presentation of it matches we like to think the experience that you're going to have so with something the mechanics of you know flourish is a drafting game so you can play solitaire you can play up to seven players you can play cooperatively or competitively but functionally what you're doing is you're building a tableau right mechanically you're building a tableau so when you're theming that out you think like oh what could that be oh well and and james uh, wilson and clarissa had already sort of themed it out as as like a gardenish theme, like oh, you got these plants and you're gathering these plants, and that was how it was originally presented to us. So in that case, it didn't take much. You know, we didn't have to do a lot of work to say, yeah, sounds good. Like we could do, you know, <laughs> all right, a, a garden building game. Um, and we developed some cool things. Like there's some cool 3D elements to this as well, and that you have like basically you're you're competing against your neighbors uh, when you're doing the competitive version, and so you can pass things over like the garden wall to your neighbors on either side of you, and then you're building your garden one card at a time. So as you draft every time, you you choose three cards, you basically put one in front of you face down that you lock into your garden, you pass one to the neighbor to the right, you pass one to the neighbor to the left. That's the general gist of the game. And you just do that a bunch, and then you score based on your final cards. So it's a very simple, approachable game, and that's where you want a simple, approachable theme, right? If we were doing... I don't know, space Nazis or something, then like, that's not really like, okay, so I guess I, I, I save this space Nazi and I pass this one to the right. Like, it's just, it's a weird thing. But what if you're playing as a space Nazi that is doing the gardening? I mean, you could do that. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would if you if you had to play as a Nazi in a game, I would prefer that the Nazis were just doing gardening. So I would take that. But uh, but yeah, so it's it, I think the approachable themes, uh, just generally speaking, and you know, I play game, a lot of games with my family, my you know, sort of extended family, and so having something you can sit down with. We literally play tested, you know, flourish at Christmas. God, that was so long ago, <laughs> pre in the before times. Um, and that was something very approachable, you know, to like my mother-in-law who's like, who actually does gardening and stuff. And she's like, oh, okay, like I get it. Like I'm building a, a, you know, versus like, okay, I'm building a spaceship. I'm playing galaxy trucker or something, right? That's a very different feel. Yeah. So I think that those sorts of games, if they're thematically appropriate are, are awesome, right? I want more variety in that. So I already have pre-ordered my copy of Mariposas and I look forward to playing it. Um, had dinner with uh, Elizabeth at BGGCon at the end of last year and having played Wingspan and stuff. And so there's lots of uh, cool experiences there. 
mechanically, so we can sort of separate that as like gamers and be like, well, actually, it could be this thing. You know, you push our glasses up. Well, actually, <laughs> yep. But yep. Uh, but there is, as I said before, there is something to the sort of um, flavorware. You know, if you're thinking of hardware, software, and sort of the thematics of it, that really matters. Like, it matters that Wingspan has pastel eggs that you're playing with, right? Absolutely. Versus like it's punchboard pieces or something. So that's not to um, negate the benefit of, of there's different ways you'd approach that. Like obviously wingspan has a 70 or $75 price point. So you can imagine a more approachable price point version of that game that had, you know, lower components. Um, and that's not necessarily a worse game. It's maybe it's more accessible, but like for this one, we went all out and we have really cool, like interactions, there's tons of punch board in the game. There's tons of cards, uh, really nice illustrations. I believe there were four total illustrators on this one. Um, and you'll be able to see, we'll be previewing more and more of that art. So we were able to choose things. That's another element you want to do in sort of, uh, thematic design in my view. And Dan May was the art director on this one. He's done a lot of our games. And so he pulled together like this, you know, this type of flower, this color, so to speak, is all done by the same artist. So you have some thematic tie-ins there. Um, it reminds me of the early days. I have a book about the early days of magic. And if you follow magic a lot, then there's, there's such a variety of artwork. And now the artwork's gotten a little more... Uh, Homogenized? Yeah, homos. I was going to be more charitable and say it's uh, <laughs> more uniform. Um, but yeah, if you think back to like you had... Uh, I'm trying to think of like Darren Bader. Um, mm -hmm. For anybody that wants to look these up, you can go to like scryfall.com and, and you can look up cards by these people. But And then like Phil Folio mm -hmm. and Richard Kane Ferguson, one of my favorite magic artists, all totally different styles, right? One's in watercolor, one's yeah. more pseudo-realism, you know. I mean, you, you talk about like Melissa Benson, you know, Shivon Dragon, right. right? You know, you look at that and then you look at, yeah, I've talked about him a ton and I've had him on the podcast, uh, Anson Maddox. You look at Sengir Vampire and you're like, what is this thing? I think yeah. this is like a, an extra from Hellraiser that's in this fantasy <laughs> game. Like, what, what is going on? Uh, yeah, yeah the, the diversity in styles in the, the early eras of magic really through I, I think like even extending past mirage even though that that's kind of to me the solidified iconic magic is all those early editions up until that time but that's because i was a kid during that time and playing it right and, and you know it, it just looked so different and so different from what was expected out of fantasy gaming at that time. And it felt like it was challenging each new set, each new setting, whether it was Ice Age or Mirage or even the Dark. It, it was really trying to do something different than what general fantasy as a, as a genre was trying to do at that point. Yeah, so that's the um, interesting thing, right? You have such variety in the industry that um, you've got a lot of room for that, right? So you could have a game like Bees, uh, which is <laughs> yeah. a separate game that has a very sort of um, particular art style. And then you could have a totally different, you know, uh, approach. And that's the beauty of the industry is the diversity of, of uh, presentation styles. And, and you just want something that's going to feel right. You don't want right. dissonance between what the consumer expects. If they sit down to play Ascension Tactics and they're like, okay this is what I think Ascension is going to be like. And you're like, actually, we decided to make it pastel watercolors. And you're like, uh, that's not what I, as a consumer, did not expect that, where pastel watercolors might be lovely for another game, right? And that that's thematically appropriate. So, yeah, I think Flourish, you know, and, and any game of that ilk is going to be more approachable um, and more um, general than, than a more specific, like, 
I'm trying to think of a good uh, any of the more like hard science games, you know, right, even right. like something like Alien Frontiers, where it's it's got a very specific retro camp sci-fi feel that yep. it's going for retro futurism. Right, the sort of futuristic of the '50s. It's the sci-fi yep. of the '50s is basically what that's echoing of the '40s, really, like Flash Gordon that sort of stuff. Mm, totally. So yeah, that's all you're trying to get when you get any of these things is to get an immersive little world, and so that's why you know things well, you want variety because you want things to feel different, look different. But I I embrace you know the the wide variety of, of themings because as somebody who plays a lot of games. I want variety. Like people ask me what my favorite game is and I, I can list off a handful of games that I play a lot. So Dungeons and Dragons, Magic the Gathering, right? Uh, Lord of the Rings, the board game. I can list like my favorite games by playtime. Yo, are we are we talking about Reinhard Knizia's Lord of the Rings, the board game? Of course. The oh, very one, the anniversary edition, a 20th anniversary edition is coming out soon for yep. only $49.95 from Fantasy Flight Games. Um <laughs> Sold over 850,000 copies. So the uh, that is probably one of my favorite co-op games because I love co-ops in general. And right. so that one came out in like 2000. And I have a custom written card, like signed by, by Reiner and has a custom ability. He used to do this at conventions. He would like write a special ability on your card that was like, only you can use this thing. <laughs> so uh, I love that game. I have all the expansions and stuff. It's best. I still assert it's best with base game and friendship, friends and foes. Uh, and not any of the other, like leave the Sauron expansion off and all that. Can so. we talk about the flavorware really quick? I realize I'm sure. just derailing you all the time, but the flavorware of that, the early editions of that game had like a, a wooden obelisk for mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the, the Tower of Baradur instead yep. of like a little standy. I didn't know that because I got a copy that had the, the old version and it is such an incredible totem. Like it feels yep. weighty and powerful and ominous. And I'm a huge Lord of the Rings guy. And mm -hmm. I would talk about this thing to my friends and be like, God, you got to check out the component in this game. I mean, some of it is kind of garbage and real dated, but you know, <laughs> I'm affectionate towards it. But seriously, the, the Baradur token is maybe my favorite gaming piece of all time. It is so, you know, potent uh, as a yeah. thematic centerpiece. And then someone was like, Hey, you want to play a game at a convention? And I broke out a copy. I was like, yeah, let's play this. You got to check out this bar doer thing. And it was like this cardboard standy. And it was the <laughs> most disappointing thing that I yep. had ever had. And I think that's what's so interesting about maybe Everdell or even war whispers or, uh, you know, flourish, which is upcoming is that I've seen criticism of Everdell in particular, because it's so popular that, why is this game so overproduced? Like, this doesn't deserve the level of production that it has, which seems like such an arrogant perspective to have. I mean, more power to you, you know, whatever. You maybe don't want that level of production or involvement in a game, or you want cheaper games. I want people to be able to afford things. But the idea that a game has to be a four-hour game to be lavish in production and to be immersive and have these little flourishes is preposterous to me. Like, one of the reasons why I want to get that game to the table is not just because it's a good worker placement game, but because it just goes so far to to bring a, a certain experience that is otherwise inaccessible except as four-hour games that you know i have to have the 
$200 edition in order to be able to play. Is that something that is indicative of what you want to be known for going forward is these very lavishly produced games? Yeah, I think you're going to see that more on the heavier end of things because you've got the budget for it if you're thinking about totally. it that way. So like a Victory Point title or a Starling title is going to be more, you know, if you're in the... 50 to 100 dollar price range you got a lot of budget to work with to make things really blinged out you know stonemeyer games does a great job with that too right you look at that and they're actually just did a survey for you know would you like a another version of tapestry without the sort of 3d pre-painted <laughs> um, pieces and of course it depends is the answer right so like for me i'm a I'm a very fortunate, you know, rich guy, basically. So, like, I can afford to buy, like, the difference for me of buying a $100 version versus a $60 version does not matter. But for a lot of people, that matters, right? right and right, so, right. and then there's a difference in expectation. So, a similar analogy to this might be, like, a cinephile who's like, oh, I need to have everything in, like, ultra HD, I don't even know what the terms are, 4K right, 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 right. HD, right? And uh, and for me, like, I just, I'm, I'm all about the content, right? So I'm like, oh, no, I just want, like, a good script and I like, good acting. And I, I don't care if I, I watch it on standard definition, right? And people are like, oh, God, oh, how could you watch it on that? So I get exactly what you're saying on the, um, I have the the fancy version of Lord of the Rings on with the, the Eye of Sauron, the Tower of Baradur, you know, the heavy right, plastic right. piece. And then the $35 version, which is what you're talking about, is the one that has the punch board. So that's like the more, the later version. Um, but there was, they're actually, the new anniversary edition, by the way, is supposed to have all the fancy, nice uh, versions of that. So, okay. Okay. and that's okay. only at a $50 price point. So that's a pretty good deal. Nice. So, so you're always trying to provide that best value is really what it's about. It's not necessarily about the price point or the contents you're never going to hit that exactly right, which is why sometimes you have multiple versions, right? So the people that want the extra content in Everdell and they want the collector's editions and they want the extra components, typically for us, there's extra components and extra content. There's those two pieces. And there are people that will say that too. How dare you, um, what do they call it? embargo this content behind a paywall <laughs> and i'm like well that's that's literally my job is to like sell you content right 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 money like that's that's not a that's a feature not a bug right like that's yeah. how we make our money and so really they're just making a value argument or like i just i don't like expansions i like to have everything in one game it's like well okay but like that's the world that we live in because like, the balance there is do you not want us to make the content? Because a certain group of people want that content, right? They want additional stuff and there's additional cost associated with that. So that is slightly different than the sort of flavorware argument of like, well, why don't you just make the cheaper version of it? So like for Flourish, for instance, we're launching with a signature edition, which literally in addition to having like gold signatures of the authors on there, of the designers on the box, also has additional content, has two expansion modules that are fairly extensive. So that's got like a $60 list price, right? So then if people go like, hmm, I don't know, uh, that's too expensive for me. Well, that's the edition that we're making, right? So it, if we have enough people that, A, we have to have enough people buy the game for it to be successful. And then it was like, you know what? You should make a more approachable version of this. Like, well, we could. Like, we could make <laughs> yeah. another yep. version that is less expensive. But that's just the reality of, and this gets into a lot of wonky things about budgeting and offsets and that sort of stuff. Because if you want gorgeous art, you got to pay for that art somehow. And there's there's an economy of scale where if I'm selling a $20 version of a game versus a $50 version of a game, 
the yield on that, the amount of money that you get and your break even points and all of that thing, those change quite a bit. So again, it's about delivering that value and you're never going to hit that hundred percent. So I feel like Everdell delivered that, you know, largely you do have people complain about it's overproduced. You have lots of people that love the way it's produced. So as we're not, never going to hit a hundred percent. So we just have to take that feedback and be like, I understand. I appreciate your perspective. And you know, if there's a way that in the future we can make a more affordable version of Everdell that does not have the cool, you know, I just can't imagine making a ver version of that game without the berries and the twigs and stuff. Right, though. right, right. But because the other piece is that it doesn't make it that much cheaper. Like that's people think like, oh, and then it'll be $20. And it's just like, well, no, like we still have to make, you know, a hundred berries or whatever it is right in punch board. And so that's still going to be some cost. So, yeah, ultimately you could just distill it into Everdell, the spreadsheet and, you know, it's right. just going to be like a $1 charge to download. Take this. And if you, yeah. you don't need all this art, like, because yeah. that's the logical extension of that, right? right. Is like, go back to like playtest. Why are you investing in all this art? This is garbage. It's like, because I like to enjoy my games and right. art is an integral part. You could play magic. You look at playtest cards, right? If you get the mystery boosters and they have those playtest cards in them and they, they're literally just stickers of like cards and like a crappy drawing on a, on a piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And if you playtested any games, that's how most prototypes are. And I can tell you definitively that it is so much more fun to play the finished version of a game. So a lot of times there'll be like a year in between when we play test a game and then we see the final version. Like I have not played the final version of Flourish yet. When that actually comes in, I want to play it because it will be a totally different and better experience. And until that time, you have to exercise your sort of flavor muscles to imprint that, like to imbue that on what you think it will be. And then your job is to make that a reality. As the consumer of the final product, you don't have to do any of that work. You just get to enjoy, hopefully you enjoy, what we've created there. And that's a combination of the work of the artists and the producers and the and the uh, designers and the developers and everybody that goes into making a game. So it, it's a fairly simple thing. I buy a box, I get it, I open it, I play it. But the work and effort that went into making that experience in a box, a portable experience that you can take anywhere and just go, oh, I'll open this up and enjoy it. It's similar to, you know, what not quite as extensive, but when you sit to the end of the credits of a movie, you realize how many people participated in that. Yeah, yeah. And it much smaller scale, but there's a lot of people that participate in, in making great board games. So that's we're happy to work with those people, whether it's you know staff internally or whether we have external folks that jump on for different given projects, which is more common, uh, especially in the realm of illustrators. So yeah, it's, there's a lot of that flavor, I think, that goes into it, right? There's a difference of like, I am playing generic superhero game versus <laughs> I am playing Marvel Champions with Black Panther. This is awesome. Yeah, like, I got it. You know, like, you're, I was just describing that game the other day, and I was like, it's like playing with your action figures. Like, there's something intrinsically exciting about being like, oh my god, I have Captain Marvel, and she's going to beat up Rhino right now. This is my fan fiction come true. You know, like it's it's very cool to be able to have that thematic resonance within a game and i i gotta tell you like i could talk to you about the industry i could talk to you about the nature of games i could talk to you about everything for so long and we need to do that but that may be best reserved for another time. What I need to make sure that i talk to you about someone who has so much experience within this industry is the before time and the now time. You mentioned it earlier, the before time. When we're recording this, we're in the middle of July 2020, and it is 
kind of in this uncertain zone of COVID pandemic as far as where the world is. And like, what does that do for you as the tabletop tycoon and, and both, you know, your your perspective on the, the industry as a whole kind of standing apart from it, too? Yeah. So, I mean, there's both those aspects. Is So what does it do for us personally? So we were very fortunate going into this, uh, both personally and professionally, that we had a really good financial standing where we were. So we weren't um, we were obviously negatively impacted by the pandemic and the drop in sales and everything. But we weren't nearly as badly impacted as a lot of other folks. So we try and sort of turn that around and do the good that we can. Um, I always feel like it's your responsibility. You know, success tends to be a combination, in my view, of luck and hard work. You need both elements to succeed. Um, people that get lucky and win the lottery and don't work hard to sort of manage their money don't have success, right? They right, have, they right, have experience, right. but they do not have success. And so always, I've always had a fairly um, overblown work ethic. And so that serves well in all in all instances. So uh, my natural reaction to any sort of adversity is, well, I guess we better get to work. And so we've been doing a lot of stuff. You know, we've been working remotely since um, middle of March, right before the official sort of lockdown orders in New Hampshire. Um, and obviously, we work remotely with people all over the place. So now having to switch entirely to remote poses some specific challenges. And this is just the perspective for lots of publishers is, you know, playtesting is more difficult to do. Doing digital playtesting tends to be much more cumbersome and time intensive than doing physical playtesting. You can't iterate as rapidly, et cetera. Um, and so that's something that's been, we've been honestly pushing a lot of that downstream. We've been like, okay, we'll come back to that. Cause the real challenge with this is nobody came in, you know, March 17th and said, Hey, by the way, we're going to have a pandemic <laughs> and for 108 days, you're just going to be under lockdown. And then after that, everything will be back to the way it was. The The uncertainty factor is some of the most uh, destabilizing aspects of this, both from an economic standpoint and from a health, a mental health standpoint. People just don't know what's next. So we try and focus on the on the positive and the and the certain elements. Right. We don't know as a company, OK, exactly how are we going to be making games? But we know we're going to make games. So we're like, OK, we're going to make games. So that like takes solace in that. How are we going to make games? Well, we're going to, however we can, right? And so we we look forward to, um, we've been doing some work in-house and obviously using appropriate PPE and everything. So we've, you know, for instance, bought and donated a bunch of masks, right? So that we have those, we have those for our staff, but we also have be, been able to donate those to frontline workers and stuff. Um, and so that's, we, we donated a bunch of games to, to retail stores, local retail stores, because they've been extremely badly hit by this. Um, we've seen this ourselves and our online sales have peaked and, and picked up. And that's what all stores are, rec are reporting as well. Obviously, online stores like Amazon are doing fine. Um, big box stores like Walmart and Target, where people are going a lot, are fine. Specialty stores, much more hard hit. And so those folks are, are, are adjusting to online as well. Local delivery, local pickup, all that sort of stuff. So we did a local store recovery package, um, which we just kind of threw together in about a month. And we ended up donating over half a million dollars worth of games to local stores. That was awesome. about over... 500 stores, I think we were like 515 stores. Um, and we literally just said, here's like $1,000 worth of games. Do whatever you want with them. You, they had to pay uh, a small amount for shipping and processing, but we basically gave them the games. And we said, these were explicit. They were like, oh, okay, like what are these for our demo copy? And I said, no, these are for whatever you need to do to get money so that you can survive. So like, feel free to sell these, do whatever you rent them out, do whatever you want. 
Um, but that that's our way of sort of that's our capital injection or capital infusion. Well, we can do that because we've been very blessed with the success of a lot of our titles. And so it's our responsibility. It's getting back to that sort of civic duty. It's our responsibility to help others. And that just that's just sort of a personal um, piece that that's the the strongest thing that we see. You know, there's been a redefinition of what essential work is. Right. There's been a definition of um, appreciation for things that we previously didn't care for. And uh and I think we all have to look at that and say, okay, what, what was I taking for granted before? You know, the people that were stocking the shelves or the people that were, you know, we, we kind of think people have a tendency, oh, God, I have to go to the doctor. Like, that's, yeah. It's amazing yeah. that you have access to, to I that. get to go to the doctor. <laughs> right. Like I was all, I'm always been somebody that's like, I go in for my annual physical every year, regardless of whether I need it or not, because prevention, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And so that's functionally kind of where we are right now, right? Is that you, we are trying to fight this pandemic because we do not have a cure. We are fighting it with prevention. So when I wear a mask uh, in public, obviously I'm not wearing one right now because there's nobody else in this room, right? right, right, my right, house. right, right. But if I wear a mask in public, it's not because I'm trying to protect myself. That was one of the early thoughts. Um, it's not, it's, it's a respect of those around me. And so the idea that, especially understanding more about this particular disease, that I might be spreading that and not even be aware, right? right? So I'm protecting the people around me. So if you flip that sort of on its face, right, there's there's what I call the, there's the silver rule, which, um, and then the golden rule, which more people are familiar with. The silver rule is don't do unto others what you wouldn't want to have them do to you. Right. The golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then there's something like, I don't know, the platinum rule or something, which is do unto others as they would have you do unto them. And because, and that's more important as you, as you appreciate the variety of, of um, elements to this, but literally like you're trying to defend people, right? This is a work, this is a tower defense game and you need to, you know, protect other people. And so whether that's by physically distancing, I don't really like the phrase social distancing. Right. Because I, I, so we had an update. I've been doing updates about once a month on our website, tabletopbycoon.com. And the first one I wrote said like physically distant, but socially together, because like we can still be socially together. And I'm super extroverted. I used to be very introverted actually when I was younger, but I, I love interacting with people. That's how I get energized. And so I naturally want to interact with people. But the idea that Oh, well, we can't interact like, uh, no, we are interacting like we're face to face. That's why I right, always prefer right, right. if I can be there in person, that's the best, both for communication and otherwise. If not, then you go to video. Uh, you know, we don't have holograms, reliable holograms yet, so we can't really do that way. Um, but then you go to, you know, voice like live voice. Then you go to live chat. Then you go to like, I'm going to write you a letter, which functionally is an email these days. Uh, and so each of those things has different communication protocols. But really what you're doing is you're trying to support the other person in that. And in this case, there's a lot of people that need support. So that's what we've been trying to do. If we're in a position of strength, it is our responsibility to help people that are not in a position of strength, whether it's from a um, sort of entitlement standpoint, you know, sort of socially um, with, with all the social change that's going on and reevaluating our place in that, what our responsibility is, or whether it's physically protecting people from, you know, from harm. Right. 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 So like, uh, well, I mean, I don't really have to like not fan the flames of my house that's on fire so that you also get caught on fire. Like, no, I actually do. I need to. Right. So that's, that's a lot of what we've been trying to do in this world. And so the impacts of that, you know, it's going to, we don't know, we don't really know what the impacts are going to be. We just know what we can do day to day. And that is effectively help. 
everybody can help in some way. So be generous, be kind, and get out there and actually do something active. And then there's a bunch of sort of boring tactical elements of what you do, like be set up for uh, a broader distribution network uh, as far as where you're producing your games in case, you know, China gets locked down again and have sufficient cash reserves to get you through a, a slowdown and all that sort of stuff. But the end of the day is really just be good and do with what you can uh, the best that you can. So that's the that's the Gandalf quote, right? All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And that's that's really true, right? Because you don't know whether uh, there was a thing the other day, right? In most most of these cases uh, for this particular disease are, um, you know, mo the mortality rate is much higher among people over 65, right? But the there was a guy the other day that was, you know, seemingly virile and in good health, no underlying conditions. Uh, contracted COVID and died three days later. So that's like always the case. People tend to forget that, that like, well, I could get in my car and I could not make it to wherever I'm going. Right. right and right. so that gives you both a sort of uh, grim wake up call. But I think that actually adds a lot of, of meaning to life because it means that you need to make the most of this moment right now, whatever you are doing. And so this crystallizes that this sort of uh, uh, issue or, or difficult time that we're living through. The important thing of that is somebody who is very optimistic generally by nature for people that are, uh, we, we used to call it, back in the day, we used to call this worry. Now it's anxiety, whether, you know, clinical anxiety or just general anxiety, generalized anxiety. And I would argue that most people, including myself, are experiencing, <laughs> experiencing anxiety due to a, a high degree right now. So people are on edge, right? So there's an element of like, be graceful, like, you know, forgive people for being short or being, you know, frustrated or whatever it is, and then just look for how you can help them because that is the the core of what we are trying to do as, as both an industry, as actors in that industry, and as a society. That's what we need to be able to do. And even if that's not actually the best play in this game from a, you know, optimization standpoint, that is the thing that if I die tomorrow, I will be happy that I did everything I could every day I was breathing to be able to help other people. So that's really the core element that I like to think of. And then everything else just flows from that. If you do good things every day, your life is the accumulation of good things done. Well, I can't think of a better way to end this than on that note. So before we let you go, how about you tell me when are people going to be able to find Flourish and where can people find more of your wisdom? Sure. So if you uh, visit um, tabletoptycoon.com, you can read my monthly updates. Um, you'll find links there to all of our different imprint websites. And of course, we're on social media and all over the place there. You find us on BoardGameGeek. We will be uh, spoiling or, or previewing uh, the Flourish stuff on BoardGameGeek. Uh, coming up in some of these virtual conventions, we'll be tying that in. And during Gen Con virtual, we'll be doing a lot of that. So hopefully we'll have some playthroughs and some overviews and stuff. So you might see me on some live streams there or the designers. Um, so that's where you can find more about us. And then uh, my phone number is also on my website. So people are, feel free to, <laughs> I always joke about that because uh, I do, like I just get calls, you know, from people that need help and um, and that's what we're there for. And you can also email me at dan at tabletoptycoon.com. Um, I don't really use social media myself much. Um, we are on there as a company on Facebook and Twitter and all that. 
Um, but honestly, I prefer to interact personally with people. So uh, if you want to talk to me, I'm readily available. You can call me, you can email me, you can come uh, read my website if you want. And one call out to people is just let us know where we can help. So one of the big things that we do is we donate games. Uh, so we've been doing a matching effort where we've been donating. You know, we donated tens of thousands of games to Toys for Tots, and uh, we continue doing that. And so if you know like an, a local organization that could use that or somebody that needs masks, we're doing a mask uh, contribution thing, please do reach out to us, right? Because that, that allows us to target those resources to where they're needed. So uh, I hope everybody stays safe and sane and well. And uh, if you need help, we're here to help. So thanks and uh, have fun playing. That's what I always sign off with because that's what we're here for. So the, to getting to your uh, so many games thing earlier, um, so our what, myriad games means a wide variety of games. That was our original mm -hmm. name. And so uh, people are always like, uh, oh, what? yeah, there's so many games. So our, our slogan was there's so many games, so little time. And I always thought that was a very positive slogan. Right, right? I was like, right, that's right, great. Right. There's so many games, so little time. Isn't this great? We have all this variety. And people are like, yeah, you're right. There's so many games and there's so little time. I'm just going to like, and I was like, what? No, that's not. So later on, we evolved that slogan to be like, there's so many games, so little time. So start playing. Because if you don't start playing, you're not in the game, right? So, right, right, right. So everybody needs to do, just get up and play something. Oh, I got a hundred games on my shelf. I can never play them. Well, in all the time you're bellyaching about not being able to play them, you know what you could do? Play a game. Just go find a solitaire game. Go play some Wingspan or something. So. All right. Well, Dan Yarrington. Thank you for coming on to the show. Thanks, Jack. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this video, we have all kinds of other reviews, interviews, and recommendations via writing, podcasts, and video here on our channel and website, CardboardHerald.com. Our content is audience-supported, so if you want to show your support, please visit our Patreon. Thank you so much for watching. This has been the Cardboard Herald.